Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and you're listening to the 10 Adventures podcast. We are more than just a travel company. We are a community of active explorers who have been inspired by the outdoors. Join me as I sit down with real people to talk about their most epic adventures on this incredible planet. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Dealing with grief is often an impetus to going on a big journey. Subconsciously, I think we realize we need time to process and reflect. And getting away, going to a remote place gives us that time. Today, we're talking to Patrick Davies, author of Where Skylarks Sing, a book about his walk across England from Land's End in Cornwall to John O'Groats in Northern Scotland. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Richard. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, I am really interested about uh, your book and your journey. Um, it's you know a very classic English walk. Uh, you've made it a little bit different, but before we get into that, I'm really interested. You know, you, you did your walk in 2021. Why did you decide to walk across uh, Britain? Well, <laughs> it's a sort of good question. Um, the the original impetus for the idea were were a couple of friends actually, who I eventually sometime in early 2021 managed to go and visit after sort of all the COVID lockdowns that we were all experiencing around the world, and um, uh, and I was sort of wondering what I should be doing next, um, having um, been a British diplomat for 25 years and then having written a book. Um, about the US, uh, which was my last posting, and and then ending up in COVID, sort of helping to look after my dad who had Alzheimer's. I was in sort of one of those places where, well, where do I go from here? And um, uh, these friends said, "Oh, you should you should walk across the country." It was just a, a bizarre sort of suggestion, really. I mean, I, I I do walk, but you know, I've always liked the outdoors, but I've never done anything long distance before. And they said, "Oh, you know, it'd be great. You'll have time to think and." And um, and you'll you know you'll having spent quite a lot of my working life abroad, I'll, you'll be able to sort of get back in touch with the country and sort of get to know it a bit bit better. And um, and so that's where the original idea came from. And and to be honest, to start with, I thought it was a bit crazy. I was like, why would I do that? That's a very long way. Um, it would take quite some time. Um, so I wasn't entirely convinced, but. Then I sort of went back home and the more I thought about it, the more sort of it grew in appeal. And I started, you know, looking at books about people who've done long distance walks and um, and started just sort of subconsciously to thinking this would be a, a great thing to do. Um, it would also give me time to think about what I wanted to do next. And, and as you say, um, you know, come to terms with the grief over my dad's condition and and what's weird about Alzheimer's, and and I'm sure many of your listeners have uh, family members who or, or have suffered from this, or partners, and so on, um, is that you sort of lose the person before they die. Really, I mean that sounds a strange thing to say, but um, you know, as Alzheimer's or dementia takes its hold on people, their characters change, their ability to communicate change, and so you sort of start to grieve for, a, in my case, my dad while he's still here and that's sort of quite hard to process so um i put all that together and just thought this is a this is a great thing to, to go and do and have that time to process and think and so uh, before i knew it 
only about three weeks after the suggestion was made with quite a very little preparation. I thought, I'm going. I, um, you know, The friends made the suggestion in, in June sometime. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to have to do it in the summer. I don't want to do it in the winter. So I better get going. So about three weeks later, in, in the middle of July, I was in, in the far southwest of Britain and, and set off. And and so, you know, you were dealing with giving up a career that I can imagine being a diplomat, you know, you have a whole bunch of other uh, people away from country kind of living together. You form really, really tight bonds in a way that we probably don't do in regular businesses, but you'd, you'd left that career and then you'd also been a carer for your, for your father and helping your mother. Um, it must have been really, really tough to make the decision to, I'm going to go walk and leave all of this. And, you know, leaving your career must have caused grief and the uncertainty and then leaving your, your, your mom to, to support your dad. Uh, how hard was that? Because, you know, reading your book, it seems that was a really, really, you know, you know, the drive down, it was a really, really tough decision. Yeah, it was. And uh, I, I sort of got quite frustrated with myself, um, really, um, because I I sort of hesitated from sort of announcing to my parents, to my mum in particular, that I was uh, I was I was heading off. I was going to do this walk because I felt I, I guess I felt really guilty for to be leaving her behind and. You know, so what had happened is I, um, I'm, I mean, I was when I came back from my last posting in the US, I was based in London to start with, because obviously that's where our government is is based, and so that's where I'd been living when I was in the UK. And then just before COVID hit, I actually came up to my parents who were in the north of England, um, and um, I took my parents away. We went to the the west of Wales, Pembrokeshire, beautiful coastal area of Wales for a few days just to give my mum a bit of a break and and take them away from home which is quite difficult with somebody with with dementia um and while we were there the sort of lockdown got tougher and tougher until the day we got back um our prime minister stood up and said right nobody goes anywhere you, you know we're in full lockdown now and um my mum turned to me um that evening and said you know I'm not sure I can do this on my own if you go back to London and and anyway why would you want to go back to London and be in a city in the middle of a in a, in a, a pandemic, so I agreed to stay. Um, and um, uh, we, uh, I mean, we we thought it would just be a few weeks. To be honest, I think we all did. We were that optimistic, and <laughs> and, and, uh, and more than a year later, I w- I was still there because there, you know over that that period 2020 2021 the lockdowns had eased um, at times, but then when they eased, the the virus got out of control, and then there was more lockdowns again. So. Um, I never escaped. Um, so, I, you know, I'd been there a year by this point. And um, so I felt really bad. I felt that, you know, I was leaving my mum in a difficult situation. Um, and actually, she was when I when eventually, you know, you'd think uh, a man of my age um, uh, should be able to have those conversations quite easily with her parents. But um, uh, it was harder than I thought. And then my mum was brilliant. Um, she was just like, that's fantastic. Go do it. Um, and my dad... Um, you know, he was like, I'm coming with you. He's like, I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, unfortunately, um, because they've always loved the outdoors as well and gone, gone hiking and stuff and camping and so on. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a tough one. Um, but then once it was out there, you know, 
they were so supportive uh, all all the way through. So that was great. Uh, I mentioned your journey, uh, uh, often called Le Jaw, Glands End to John O'Groats. Um, really famous, but a lot of people probably don't know what it is. Can you maybe just talk about big picture? How long is it? What are some of the you know great places it goes through? And you know how long were you planning on spending doing the walk? So Land's End to John O'Groats, it, it's 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 a little bit arbitrary, really. So Land's End is Land's End is in the far southwest of England in Cornwall, and John O'Groats is in the far northeast of Scotland. So they are the two places in Great Britain that are the furthest apart. Um, they're they're nothing more than that. So it's but it's become a bit of a thing. It's I guess it's a little bit of. It's Britain's Pacific Crest Trail in a way. It's the long distance hike um, in the UK, uh, and in fact, it, it's it's more a, for lots of people do it on a, on a bike rather than yeah, walking, yeah, yeah. That, that's where I've always heard it is on the bike, and I, that's I was so interested in, in your walking it because I haven't heard yeah, much of people do it that few, way. Fewer people walk it, um, and. It, why it's a little bit different to sort of some other famous long distance trails is because it isn't a single path. It there isn't a single defined route um, uh, to walk it or even to cycle it. I, I, people make up their own routes, um, and by adding together national trails, and then there's bits when actually there aren't national long distance trails, and you have to sort of put other footpaths together to make your route. So, if you went the most direct um route between Land's End and John O'Groats it's about 800 miles something like that so obviously considerably shorter than something like the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail but the route I took you mentioned this earlier that I did a bit of a variation of it I was like well Land's End to John O'Groats is a bit arbitrary and you know lots of people do that so I want to do something a bit different so I started about two or three days to the east of Land's End, still in the far southwest of England, uh, in a place called Lizard Point, which is a stunningly beautiful peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic. Um, and that's the southernmost point on the mainland. And then I decided my end point would be the most northern point on the mainland. So you can see what I'm putting together. And that's a, like a day to the west of John O'Groats. So, so they're little bits that stick out on the top and bottom of the country that make them the most southern, the most northern. So that was my start point and my end point. And then I also, I mean, the Midlands of England is quite industrial in parts. I mean, there are there are beautiful places too. Don't get me wrong, but there's some big cities, and I thought I'm not entirely convinced I want to walk, navigate myself through those parts of the country. So. I detoured into Wales. So after I'd done the far southwest, uh, I went into uh, to Wales and crossed the centre of Wales to the, the northwest of Wales, where is Wales's highest mountain, Snowdon, um, before coming back into England and, and heading north to Scotland. Um, so my route ended up being almost 1,400 miles, um, uh, uh, which is considerably longer than the, than the direct route. But it was also, you know, I got to see more, many more of them, the more remote parts of the country, which is obviously beautiful and, and you know, better than, in my view, than walking through urban areas, which isn't particularly fun, except when you're very hungry. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, one thing that uh, I always tell people is just how beautiful 
the UK is for walking. And it, it's one of these places that really punches above its weight. And there's so much diversity. And so you were able to sample so much from coastal paths to, you know, rural hills, Snowdonia. Uh, what are some other uh, places you went to that are really spectacular that, you know, somebody who hasn't been there should consider, of, oh, this might be a fun place to go for a week-long walking holiday? Yeah, there are there are so many places. Um, the far southwest for coastal scenery is is absolutely breathtaking. Um, uh, inland, it's small little villages. Of course, um, uh, we're famous for our pubs here. There's always a little country pub, which is somewhere nice to stop to eat. Um, and it's you know we're we're a small, quite densely populated island, really. But it is what I always find amazing in 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 the uk is you don't have to walk very far until you lose the people and you do feel like you're really in the great outdoors so you know in cornwall i started in the middle of july which is the height of high season it's full of people on on their summer holidays with their children and when you went into the little coves and the little towns they're quite busy but as soon as you walk up to the cliffs and start walking once you've gone a mile you're on your own and you you find the next little cove that's not accessible by car, and you know, and you're really in the out, great outdoors, and um, and you know, it's it's the wild southwest of the UK jutting out into the Atlantic, and so these these bays and and coastal views are stunning, and the water is turquoise. I mean, on a sunny day, it looks like you're in the Caribbean. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I mean. It, the weather can be rough too, but then that brings its own, you know, it, it, it's fabulous in my view to be, if the, the weather's a bit rough you mean, and you're in, on the wild coastal sort of place, as long as you can manage to get dry, there's there's something great about that too. So that's one area. Wales is, um, um, you, there's a whole, there's a coastal path around the whole of Wales now, and there's um, this beautiful coast in, in Wales, but I walked through the centre of Wales, which is one of the most uh, the least densely populated areas of the the UK, alongside Scotland, so it's incredibly quiet, and you're just in these rolling hills. Um, so that's that's um, a, another beautiful area too. Um, the Lake District in the northwest of England, um, it's a it's a national park, quite a small area, um, it's stunningly beautiful, full of lakes. Um, uh, it can rain quite a lot, but hence where the water comes from. Um, you know, when you're in a, a on a, in an island like we are in Britain, the weather changes really quite quickly because it blows in from the Atlantic. So if you get rain, you'll get it for a couple of hours and then it blows through. So I think people think, oh, it's going to be terrible in the UK because I'll, you know, the weather will be awful and you know, so I'm sure it's lovely, but you know, I'll go somewhere where it's going to be nicer. But actually, you, I mean, I walked for seventy three days, and I had a couple of periods of bad weather in the whole time. In fact, I battled heat more than anything else. I started and it was an absolute heat wave uh, in Cornwall and, and so hot for us. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I did get a bit wet over 73 days, but not that much. Um, really not that much because the weather blows through. So, um, And I haven't even mentioned Scotland. Um, uh, Scotland is, it is the least populated part of the UK the further north you get the highlands are stunning mountains um, there's a huge amount of walking to be done um, wonderful scenery um, so yeah there's there's so many things to see 
Hey everyone, this is Richard and I just want to take 30 seconds to let you know that if you are enjoying these stories and are interested in embarking on your own adventure, then head over to 10adventures.com. At 10 Adventures, our specialty is booking private and custom active holidays. Jump straight from dreaming to doing without any of the hassle of travel planning in between. Join thousands of other travelers who have already booked with 10 Adventures to destinations in over 85 countries and experience more of what our planet has to offer while making memories that'll last a lifetime. Now back to the podcast. So starting out on your walk, you mentioned... You know, it was almost a flippant content, uh, a comment, and then it started ruminating. You're like, I got to start doing this. You didn't have any of the gear. And if you, we all think back to 2021, you know, I had some old tents that I just put up on Facebook Marketplace. And I remember I put them up and I had like 150 messages in a couple hours because I didn't realize you couldn't buy a tent. And the only thing you could do was going camping here in the Rockies in, in the summer of 2020. How did you get the gear? Well, I had I had some gear, um, so because you know I've I've walked and hiked you know day hikes before now and done bits of camping, but they weren't particularly lightweight. Um, <laughs> I mean, the rucksack I I ended up sourcing from the the French Pyrenees. <laughs> it was um, uh, I you know I I did searching online to find a good lightweight rucksack, found what I wanted to get, and. Um, and it just didn't exist in Britain. They no one had it. Every, everybody had bought them. Um, and I found this ski shop in in the French Pyrenees, which uh, rather strangely, um, the year after when I walked across the Pyrenees, which we might talk about a bit later, um, I, I came across the shop I'd bought it from <laughs> um, in the middle of nowhere in the in the French Pyrenees, which was slightly strange, but. Um, and I went in and told them actually, and they, you know, I, I, they, they mailed it to me, and it arrived. It arrived two days later. I was amazed, but it took hours and hours of searching to find it. Um, I just managed with an old tent I had, which really wasn't very light, and turned out not to be very waterproof. <laughs> which, um, which, so, uh, not two or three weeks in to the walk I desperately needed to replace a tent the weather weather was pretty good early on so it wasn't so problematic but I knew it was probably going to get worse as I got into September and October so um uh and uh, I bought an American brand tent a lightweight tent and it was couriered to me by the company I mean, uh, and I found it by, again, This it was not available anywhere in the UK or even Europe I could find. And I ended up on Twitter and Instagram messaging the company and going, can I have, have you got one? And they sent me the last tent that existed in their North America shops. The last one. They found one in, <laughs> I think it was Salt Lake City branch in Utah. And they said, well, if you, if you pay us the money, we'll send it to you. And they did. And and so I got it posted to me in Wales. <laughs> so I, I met my new tent in Wales and, and finally had something that was waterproof. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I guess lots of other people go through this too in terms of the packing um, challenge where you think I'm going to be ruthless. I'm really going to be ruthless. I'm only going to, get, going to take what I really need to take because I'm walking a long way and I've got to carry all this stuff. And then you think you've been ruthless and then you start walking and you really realize really quickly you haven't been ruthless at all. Um, and there are all sorts of things that 
you think you've thought you thought were necessary and actually clearly they aren't necessary you can you can survive with quite you know a lot less than you thought um and so uh it was only i think it was on day three in cornwall um it had been hot and uh and really tough walking because the, th- the thing about coastal walking i mean foolishly i've thought this in the past you think oh i, I walk along the coast will be nice because it's pretty flat well, you're not in mountains, but the trouble is you're going down to a cove and up the other side and then down to a cove and up the other side. And so, you know, you can you can easily do a thousand metres a day up and down constantly on a coastal walk. And so it was quite a challenging start. And so after day three, day four, I took a day off and just said, I'm I'm sending stuff home. I just, I packed stuff up. I took stuff away. I packed stuff up and mailed it back and just sort of got rid of some of the weight because... Um, I was sure I wasn't going to make it if I carried on carrying whatever I was carrying at the time, maybe 17 or 18 kilos or something, which was crazy. There's a fun part in the book where uh, you're walking with a, you know, a large pack and you come across other man who has, you know, what sounds like a small <laughs> day pack and uh, you find out he's doing a one week, you know, walk along, I think the Southwest Coast path. And, you know, what was going through your mind then? Like, did you start start to question because it like for me it's been a long journey of you go out you mail the first thing back you mail the second thing back you come back yeah next trip you like it's like it's iterative yeah what were you thinking when that happened you're like i've got this all wrong like or did you kind of just i always justified it oh he must not have all these things that are are obviously necessary or he's taking a risk yeah i mean it was extremely hot at that point as well and i was i was laboring up yet another cliff when I saw this guy and he was almost jogging um, and I just, well, and it's one of those moments you just think that would be so nice to have a pack that small. But then, you know, I talked to him and he said, well, he didn't have a cooker so he couldn't, you know, he couldn't make a drink or, you know, cook something up on his stove. And, um, and he was indeed, he he was saying to me, oh, have you seen a shop? Cause he, he had no, he had no food and he would, he needed to get some stuff to eat. Um, and I hadn't seen a shop for some time, actually. But uh, I, so, I, yeah, I started a bit like you say, I started justifying saying, well, I wouldn't want to do this long walk. OK, a week might be all right without a cooker and surviving on, I don't know, crackers and dry bread or something and cereal bars and those sorts of things. But when you're doing a longer distance than that and you're going to be out for a long time, you know, I want to I want to eat proper food in the evening. Um, you know, I want to be able to cook something up and uh and those sorts of things. So yeah, I I sort of justified it to myself, but you know, I have honed the packing further since then. I have to <laughs> say. <laughs> uh, you, you talk about meals, and and one thing that's really interesting is, um, you know, a big part of your plan was oh, go for a nice meal, and you know, when you're in a village, go to the pub, have a nice pub dinner. Yeah, that wasn't happening. You know, a lot of times either they weren't serving food, yeah. or you know, they had a city and it was all booked booked up. What was what was going on that made it so hard just to to get a meal? Well, I mean there were there there was a there were two things really. One was COVID, um, and so you know as things came back to life after COVID, people were struggling for staff. But it was hugely compounded here because we left the European Union, and that meant um, people from other European countries couldn't come to the UK to work, um, and. Um, and things like our hospitality sector and our care sector and all those sorts of slightly lower paid 
inconvenient at our jobs um, that Brits don't want to work, a bit like uh, from my time in uh, the US, that Americans don't want to do either, are done by people who, you know, immigrants who come to the country. And it, we'd, we'd made it harder by by doing Brexit. And so people were struggling. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and sort of pubs and, and cafes and stuff were sort of tearing their hair out and campsites and places because they said, you know, we can't open at full capacity. So this is our moment where we can, everybody's stuck in the UK on staycations because nobody could travel abroad. So in, in many ways, this was a great time to have a local British business. And yet they couldn't staff themselves enough to take advantage of what was happening. And so, you know, pubs would only have uh, one serving a day and that would be lunch. And, and I'd get there in the late afternoon thinking I'm going to have some nice food and couldn't. Um, uh, yeah, so um, it was a bit frustrating, to be honest. <laughs> I went several days and um, without having, I mean, you know, it's fine. You, you can eat other things, but you know, when you've done a long walk, it'd be really nice to sit somewhere and have a good good meal. But um, it wasn't always possible, as you said. Is that still an issue? You know, you did your walk in twenty twenty one. If someone were to come in twenty twenty three, are there still you know staffing issues? Uh... It's it's much better to be honest. It's it's much uh, much better than it was. Um, that was the real sort of, if you like, the sort of crisis point post COVID uh, and the early days of Brexit being implemented. So so the the hospitality sector in particular has has got much better at, at staffing themselves. There are still shortages in other sectors, but if you came here on holiday, I don't think you'd notice now, to be honest. Um, everything's open. Um, uh, people have got more creative at how they do things as well uh, because they've had to. But yeah, there are there are shortages in other sectors, but not that would affect visitors to the UK, I don't think. Uh, one of the questions people always want to know is where do, where do you sleep on these big journeys? And uh, you slept in a, in a few different places. Do you want to maybe just share the options uh, and how how you decided where to sleep each night? Yeah. Um, so I um, I camped. So it's seven three three days, sixty something nights. I was in a tent, um, and some of that was wild camping in the more remote places. Um, but one of the great things about um, walking in the UK is because we're quite heavily populated compared to the likes of North America, um, is that villages are quite close together. or And they may be tiny, but they they exist. And so, you know, I think if you do something like the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail and, and long distance walks in, in Canada, you can go for days and you're just in the wilderness. Um, it's less like that in the UK, which, you know, if you're looking for wilderness, um, you find less of it here than in some other places. Um, but it does mean that you can walk and be in the middle of nowhere and on your own. And at the end of the day, you can find a tiny village with a pub or a shop um, and to, to resupply. So I didn't have many occasions, um, probably only three or four across the whole walk where I had, uh, you know, two or three days where I wasn't somewhere during the day or at the end of the day where you could, could resupply. And, you know, um, particularly toward you know later in my walk when you're into to, into the autumn, you know it was great to be able to set up camp and then I might have to walk another mile or two <laughs> at the end of a long day of walk, but I'd be without my backpack and then you'd get a good meal and good meal at that, uh, the end of the day as well, which was great and be warm. Uh, one part of of uh, 
the book early on really talks about your struggles with blisters. And uh, I think we've all been there. I think everybody's first walk, you know, you, at one point you mentioned the blisters on the the sole of your foot. I remember getting them like right on the instep. And um, how did you eventually deal with them? Did you find something that, that worked? Um, well, you know, I, in, in many ways, I only have myself to blame <laughs> for the blisters. <laughs> Uh, when you decide to do a long da- distance walk at, at th- three weeks, four weeks notice and go and buy yourself a new pair of leather walking boots and thinking, well, I'll break them in along the way. Um, turns out that's not in, not particularly sensible. Um, and uh, and it was also ridiculously hot at the beginning as well. Unusually hot for Britain, which I think, you know, compounded the problem. So, I, yeah, as I say, I, I really only had my myself to blame, but I... I bought loads of blister plasters. I mean, I think I was keeping the business going at, at one point because I was, uh, and you know, when it's hot, these blister plasters, they do sort of reduce the pain, but they, they move around when your feet get hot. So they don't really stay on the blisters. And that's even worse because you get to the end of the day and you've got to do something. And uh, and uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk in too much detail about this, but um, it's pretty, pretty unpleasant. Um, so yeah, it was... It was about two weeks in, I think it was the worst. I mean, it it I was in serious pain walking. And I, I actually that's the only thing on the whole walk that I thought might stop me. And I was so annoyed with myself, because of course, as I said, it really had no one else but myself to blame for it. Um if that was what was going to stop me um from completing the walk, it would have been quite annoying. But um one uh, your feet harden over time. So, you know, things you, you go through, if you get blisters, you go through that awful, painful period, but then your feet get more resilient. Um, but also I, I took to taping, taping up the place, places that might rub. Um, and in fact, slight, slightly obsessively so, after I <laughs> had blisters, I, I taped almost every part of my foot that might rub for weeks and weeks. Um which which I probably didn't need to do, and subsequent walks, you realise that you only need to do that for a few days, and then you you your feet are hard enough to manage. But um, yeah, so it was a combination of blister plasters. Um, I'd read somewhere that it's really not a good thing to pop blisters because they can get infected, and I didn't. But actually, I think ultimately that made um, made it worse, made it made it more painful, um, uh, and eventually some of them either popped on their own or I just. I did a little piece of minor surgery um, in various places because it was just it was just getting too awful, um, and then you just you know just had to try and keep as clean as you could. Um, so it was fine in the end, and in a way, it's only blisters. I hadn't broken anything, but um, it's surprising if your feet are really sore, how you can think of nothing else. I mean, nothing else. I tried all sorts. I was listening to music. I was you know trying to sing to myself. I was you know, whatever I could to try and distract myself from the, my feet, but it doesn't really work. Um, it really doesn't. The subtitle of your book uh, references healing, and I'm interested how this walk uh, was healing for you. I think, as I said at the beginning, I you know, a lot had changed in my life before I went on this walk. I'd sort of given up my career, di- diplomatic career. I'd ended up being um, helping to care for my dad during COVID. Um so that's quite a lot of change to process and um 
you know, and I was at that point where I thought, well, I now need to decide what I'm going to do next. And so this would be the opportunity to have the the, the headspace and the time to myself. And and um, uh, so, you know, I thought I may have some great thoughts along the way. I really did. I thought, you know, you know, you, those lightning bolt moments. And, you know, I had a few of those, but largely I think, you know, I was th- I was wrong to expect something like that to happen. But what did happen that I really didn't expect is just the amazing power of just doing something something quite simple every day. So all I had to do was get up, pack up and walk and get to my next destination and do the reverse. Unpack, you know, put my tent up, find some food and and that was it and all that all the day you're in the outdoors and you're you know you're going at a slower pace than life normally takes you and you just have time to sort of just really slow down in a sort of and i mean in terms of the you know the brain as well instead of constantly thinking about what am i what have i got to do where have i got to be what deadline have i got what have i forgotten to do you just get into a rhythm which is is incredibly therapeutic and um i mean it's almost meditative in a way and i you know i i'm not one of those people you know who's um into meditation and not the you know it's just not not my thing i've never done that sort of thing before but walking is almost that process and it just and, and actually it's why I mentioned the sort of I thought I'd have great thoughts that that to me is not the power of walking the power of walking is actually just freeing the mind to just exist and allow you to exist and notice things around you that you don't notice in normal life because you're more aware and you have the time and and you're calm and so you know, you, you you asked me earlier about the sort of what were the highlights of what are the beautiful places you you saw along the way, and there are there are lots of them. We've we've talked about them, but the other other revelation is even in parts of the country where you think, oh, this is going to be the the boring bit. This is the bit where I've got to get through the northwest, which is you know you're between Liverpool and Manchester, two big cities. It's quite flat. Um, you know, it's not going to be very interesting. But even in the places you think aren't the most inspiring physically or, you know, the most beautiful, there is beauty everywhere. There really is. When you have slowed down to the point that you notice it, and we don't notice it in normal life because we're whizzing about and rushing about, or you're driving past something in a car. But when you're walking through somewhere, you have time to see those things and feel those things that you, you don't in normal life. And so that to me was the the incredible healing power of walking. It's not some great revelation lightning bolt moment. It's actually just that slowing down and being more aware and having time for yourself. And um, and that was a revelation, I think. It, you know, it's it's the way you describe that is exactly, you know, my own experience. And then what I love about walking is, or even bike tour, it's, it's just so simple. You have nothing to do. And what I find is, you know, sometimes, you know, even when I'm out with my family, We'll spend an hour or two and no one will talk. And I'll just realize in my mind, I'll have been counting to a hundred again and again and again. And my my mind will be completely blank. And uh, we had an author on last year 
who uh, did a bunch of, uh, basically the book brought together a bunch of research. And they said, actually walking is very similar to meditating. The only difference is in meditation, you do it for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But if you go to walk by yourself, you might do a three or four hour meditation, which is is unheard of. And uh, I always wondered, after all these walks, I just feel great. And I, you can't explain, people say, but you must be tired and sweaty and stinky. And it's like, I don't know what it is, but you know, within... 15 minutes and a beer or a soda or a candy bar or whatever, a meal, I feel like a million bucks. And I, I know it's not logical, but there's something about being outdoors and being active and it just makes the body feel so good. Yeah. I'm, I'm somewhat off the quest, ask the question of like, well, how did you do it? I couldn't do something like that. And my answer is, is always, you know, you really can. I mean, <laughs> I mean, okay, so I'm relatively fit, but I'm not a fitness fanatic. You know, I'm not somebody who goes to the gym several times a week. I'm not somebody who is, you know, running up and down mountains every day. Of, you know, uh, I can. I, you know, I have a, I have a decent level of fitness, and I like the outdoors. And at three weeks' notice, I went and walked across the country. That's not because I'm a superhero or any. I, I'm just very normal. It's, it's totally doable. Now, if you said go and row across the Atlantic, I'd think hmm, I might need a bit of practice, a bit of training <laughs> for that. I'll practice, but walking, everybody can do. Absolutely, everybody can do, even with a backpack. Um, you know, or pretty much everybody. Obviously, you know, um, it's not accessible to everybody, but the vast majority of us can just do it. And it's amazing how quickly you become more and more conditioned. Um, you know. The beginning of the walk was quite hard, as I said. I mean, walking, coastal walking is tough and it was hot and you're carrying a pack. But you just walk a few, few, fewer miles every day and then you slowly, you find within a space of two or three weeks that actually it's fine and normal and that's, and before you know it, you're work, walking much further than you've ever worked, walked before just because, you know, if you walk at, let's say two or three miles an hour if you're walking for seven or eight hours a day you you're quickly adding up the miles and um uh, yeah and it's 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 totally doable i you know i you know, I'll, i just hope more people just get out there and start doing it because the the you know healing is such a a bit of a loaded word but the sort of the powers of walking just to sort of for well-being and mental health and all that sort of stuff is is incredible and i don't th- i don't think i realized it before I before I walk the country, and that leads me on. You know, since this walk, you've become a bit of a nomad. You mentioned some of the other walks you've done, but you know, what transpired in in your life after the walk in terms of you know you ha- you haven't gone back to the diplomatic service. Uh, you know, so so how did it impact you that way? Well, I you know I I, I wrote a book about the walk across the UK. I mean, I, it it inspired me to to write. Um, and so, um, you know, that was published late last year, which has been an amazing experience. And um, so you know, I, that's what I focused on since. But I've also done some more walking. Um, uh, so part of um, my motivation walking has been been raising money. And so, you know, the my walk across the UK, I, I raised money for Alzheimer's research, uh, given my dad's condition and, and raised more than 30,000 pounds. Um, and I've done two subsequent walks, um, 
across. Um, so I walked from Beiritz to Barcelona, uh, which is the southwest of France, down to the um, northeast coast of um, Spain. But I crossed the whole of the Pyrenees in the way uh, on the way. Uh, the the French have have long distance walks called Grand Randonnée, the GRs. Uh, so that was the GR10, um, and you sort of climb the equivalent of Everest six or seven times in the process. Uh, so I did that in, uh, sorry, that's 2022 now. And in last year, I uh, did a slightly shorter walk. It was about 700 and something miles. I walked from the basically the eastern border of France from the northeast near Strasbourg and then um, joined uh, the GR5, which crosses the Alps to the Mediterranean. Um, so that was, a yeah, close to 800 miles, those those two walks each, um, and raised another whatever it was. So in total, I've raised 45,000. Don't know what that is in Canadian dollars, sorry, 80 <laughs> or 90,000 Canadian dollars, something like that, possibly. Maybe, no, not not that much. But um, in, in the old days, it was, but yeah, the pound has gone down from 2.4. You know, when I used to live there down, I think it's 165 now. So England's gotten a lot cheaper for, for me as a Canadian. Um, it's it's funny you, you talk about raising money, and one thing that's really interesting in the book is how many people you interact with who are impacted. And you know, there's the Moroccan barber who gives you a free haircut, and campsite owners that give you a free campsite, and people that that pledge money. And even myself, you know, I hadn't really thought of it. I know two people. In fact, one of my neighbors um, had early onset Alzheimer's, and so I saw in a period of you know, kind of twelve months, you know, a really significant impact. And it is, I feel like it's a um, it's a disease that is pervasive. It impacts, you know, almost everybody, you know, through their network. Um, but it's also one that we don't ever talk about. It's like this forgotten one. And uh, what have you learned about Alzheimer's since you've been raising money and, and dealing with this with your father? Well, I mean, it, it, Alzheimer's dementia, I mean, it's it's a horrible, cruel disease because it basically takes away who people are and, and their ability to, to, to function um, over a period of time. My dad um, has now. He late last year he went went into care because he he can't. You know, my mum couldn't manage anymore, and you know he needs more support than than she can provide. And you know they've been married so almost sixty years. And you know when you've been together with somebody for that long, for them to you know no longer uh, be living together, it's 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 really really tough. Um, but you know. There's lots of people getting Alzheimer's much earlier as well. It's not just a disease of the very elderly. And I think, in my view, I think that's one of the reasons why less attention has been paid to Alzheimer's than to other diseases like cancer or heart disease is because, you know, more more elderly people suffer from it than, than younger people. And so guess there's an assumption that it's just part of aging but it but it isn't it's a disease i mean you know there are people who age and as, as people get older you know they they do suffer from various things and you know they may not be able to walk as far or they may you know they may have some physical um symptoms um we all die of something at some point but alzheimer's is a disease and it, it basically destroys the brain and um you know it's probably in my dad's case it's you know, it's taken away 10 plus years of functioning life. Um, he's only now in his early 80s. He was diagnosed in his mid 70s. Um, you know, people can live, you know, uh, you know, 
a high performing life until well into their late 80s or 90s now sometimes so you know it does it does have a massive impact on people but there's this as i say there's an assumption that it's 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 old people and that's what happens um so actually you know trying to raise money for alzheimer's research to to uh, which is is hugely needed and, and and breakthroughs are being made and so you know we will find better treatments and ultimately a cure it, it will take some time but um uh you know i i know from sort of close family experience of this it's not anything you want we want to get i mean it, you really do not want dementia or alzheimer's if you can avoid it um uh and so the more we can do to sort of um improve treatments it, it, the better because it it's you know, it's affecting millions and millions of people around the world now um, and uh, has a massive impact on society from everything, from the care sector to, you know, um, people who like, are like my parents who can no longer live together and won't see out the rest of their life together because of this disease. So, um, yeah, the more we can do, the better, basically. And and with that, I want to say thank you for coming on the show today, Patrick. It's been great to hear about the walk, but I think what makes it special is also uh, giving, you know, giving light onto the impact of Alzheimer's and being able to tell your story a little bit. Um, if people want to follow along, find your book, how do they do that? Well, they can, um, I, I post daily photos of all my walks on, on Instagram, which is, um, is at Patrick J Davies. Um, so they'll find me on Instagram and on Instagram in, in my bio, you'll find a link to to, to the book and 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 lots of other things so uh if anybody wants to go there um they can find it there and i you know i have a web website which is patrickjdavies.com um so they can go there as well excellent and once again patrick thanks for coming on the show and uh it's a really fun read it's very heartfelt at times uh, and for someone who's always wanted to do the route it's kind of fun to read a great story about a you know that's informative that makes me think oh how would i do that so uh, I urge everyone, if you're looking for a read here for a cold winter eve uh, weekend, uh, go get the Kindle book. You can have it in your hands in 15 seconds. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, and with that, um, thank you, everyone, for uh, sticking around for this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Start planning your own adventure by visiting us at 10adventures.com and listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you find your podcasts.